0: Good morning. Let's make sure we continue to have our Bibles open. One of the amazing things that we see when we take time to just sit with Scripture like that is the way that we go through this kind of arc, this cycle of discontent to satisfaction to joy. You start reading a long passage of Scripture, at first it's a little tough. You want to grab your phone, you want to look around, you want to give in to the impulse to be distracted and then you kind of settle in and then pretty soon you find your rhythm and you really are locked in and you're focused and you're hearing from the Lord. Brothers and sisters what we just did this morning I think uh, should be something that you regularly do. You make time to spend uh, a good amount of time with God and his word and and when we do it together like this and when the when the pressure is on a little bit to be locked in I think we see Just how easy it really is at the end of the day. So, this morning's sermon is going to be on the first nine plagues of Egypt. The tenth plague is going to come next week. We're going to talk about the Passover next week. Speaking of plagues, it seems like the plague is upon the house of Sixth Avenue Community Church. Look around. We are empty. I want to encourage you to be the church. Think who's not here. Most of them are sick. I've gotten a lot of text messages. So reach out, be the church, encourage people who aren't here, check on them, see how you can serve them, and help them. So (coughs) the fantastic Exodus scholar, Michael Morales, he rightly declares that in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is the embodiment of the serpent, the serpent, the, the, the dragon, the, the slithering one from all the way back in Genesis 3 who's constantly trying to attack the seed of the woman. And in his fantastic book, Exodus Old and New, uh, he runs through all these different arguments for, for why Pharaoh is the serpent in Egypt. I'm not going to run through all of that with you this morning, but I'm going to give you two proofs that he gives Uh, One biblical, one historical, and if that's not convincing enough for you, I just encourage you to pick up that book and read it. So first, here's the biblical reference. It's, It's one of many. It's from Exodus 29, excuse me, Ezekiel 29, verse 3, and it reads like this. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams that says, This Nile is my own and I made it for myself. The word dragon here in Ezekiel 29 is the Hebrew word for tannin, which is used interchangeably for the word serpent in the book of Exodus and elsewhere in the Bible. Now, if you combine that little biblical fact, along with others, with this historical information we have about Pharaoh, it becomes even more convincing. So, for example, Pharaoh wore a headdress, and on that headdress there was a symbol of an animal, because in the ancient world, deities were represented by animals, symbolically. What animal, would you guess, was the symbol on the headdress of Pharaoh? Yeah, the, s- the serpent, the cobra, So we we know that biblically and historically, this king of Egypt was seen to be the embodiment of the serpent image. Now, let's keep that in mind as we look at our very first text this morning, chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. And because we share this space with other people, my Bible was temporarily missing. Don't worry, everything's okay. In Exodus chapter 7, we see that the plagues are a series of signs and wonders, but they don't actually begin with a plague. They actually begin with a parable, starting in verse 8 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt who also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The first sign, the first wonder that we see in this account, again, it's not a plague, it is a parable. It's a microcosm of what's about to take place over the next seven chapters of the book of Exodus. What we see here is that this this contest between the serpents is that Yahweh's serpent wins. Yahweh's serpent comes along and swallows up Pharaoh's serpent, and he swallows him up whole. Now, this is significant. The word swallow that's used here in the text, it's only used one other time in the book of Exodus, and it's used in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, there's this song that celebrates the victory of Yahweh over Pharaoh. They're on the other side of the sea, and they sing a song, and and in the song it says, praise the Lord, for he has swallowed up his enemies. In the same way that the waters swallowed up Pharaoh and his army, in the same way that Moses and Aaron's serpent swallowed up the magician's serpent. Yahweh is going to swallow up the powers and the principalities of Egypt. So as we look at the next, as we look at these nine plagues together, I want you to know that there's going to be a lot that we don't touch on. Just... There's just so much here. I'm trying to give us a 10,000-foot view of the, p- of the plagues. I want us to understand at a macro level what's happening. So you're going to have a lot of questions that I'm just not going to address. For example, what about these naturalistic explanations for the plagues? You know, is it wasn't there some kind of like weird like algae thing that could have turned the waters of the Nile red and made them seem like blood? I, I think most of those naturalistic explanations are foreign to the Bible, and they don't make much sense. Uh, what about these magicians and the sorcerers and their power? Did they actually have power? Well, actually, I, I think that they did, but we're not going to talk about that, and I'm not going to explain that this morning. And, and what about some of the questions like, were they really gnats? I was reading a commentary, Sean, and they said that maybe it was mosquitoes and not gnats. Yeah, I don't know. We're not going to talk about that. You can study all, this. listen, you live in the wealthiest time in human history. You have access to all the commentaries, all the sermons. I mean, you can just go on Google and you can study this as much as you like, and I would actually very much encourage you to do that for your quiet time this week. But this morning's sermon is going to be the big picture. So there are three major themes that we're going to see uh, this morning, and those are going to be the three points of the sermon. Here they are, note takers. Number one, patterns of progression. Point number two, Yahweh versus the Pantheon. And then point number three, a holy distinction. Patterns of progression, Yahweh versus the Pantheon and a holy distinction. Point number one, patterns of progression. What I want you to see as you read, and maybe you notice it already, as you read through the story of these plagues, you see that there's a sort of momentum built into this narrative as we progress from pr- plague 1 to plague 10 and this this momentum this progression it's actually multifaceted there are several layers of momentum so for example consider pharaoh's magicians you have this initial showdown between you know Moses and Aaron and and, and their snake and and Yahweh uh, uh, excuse me and Pharaoh and his magicians and their snake And at the end of that encounter, it just doesn't seem like the magicians are all that worried about the loss that they've incurred. They're just kind of unfazed. It's almost like, oh, that guy's magic is a little bit better than my magic, but we're going to win in the end. But then after that, in the second plague, in chapter 8, verse 7, we see that the magicians can do something like produce frogs of their own. But obviously, it's not as powerful, as significant as the the plague that the Lord brings. But again, the magicians don't seem to be phased by their loss in that encounter. But then when you get to the third plague in chapter 8, verse 19, you see the tide begin to turn. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. It says, Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of of god even the magicians of pharaoh at great risk to their jobs probably to their lives they must admit something incredible is happening here and it's not human it's not what we're doing it's divine and then later after some of the most severe plagues they go to pharaoh and they say please pharaoh you have to recognize we are getting killed out here we're getting destroyed let these people go and so you have a progression at first, they are nonplussed, and by the end, they are begging Pharaoh to recognize that Yahweh is, in fact, God. So that's one kind of progression. But then you consider the plagues themselves. They seem to progress in more ways than one. For example, they seem to progress from temporary to, to permanent. So you start off the first plague, the waters of the Nile turn into blood, and we read at the end of that account in chapter 7, verse 25, that it only lasts Seven days. I say only it must have been terrible. Whenever in Peru we would go without fresh water, it would be very, it made our lives very hard. We read in the text that the people had to dig along the riverbank to try to find fresh sources of water because they were so desperate for it. Nevertheless, it was temporary. But then you have the hail in the locusts, in the death of the livestock. And this just would have wreaked utter havoc, not temporary havoc, but significant, sustained havoc, damage to crops and food supply. It would have had a major impact on the economy and the labor force, such an impact that it would have taken a significant amount of time to recover from. Then you have in the final plague, death. Death. In the land of Israel, and there no amount of time, energy or investment can bring life back from the grave. We go from short to sustained to permanent as we progress through the plagues. There's also a kind of progression in the severity of the plagues. It goes from a disturbance to destruction to death. You can see in Exodus chapter nine verses two through three, where the Lord kind of halfway through the plagues tells Pharaoh, "Hey, listen. You don't seem to be getting it. You're not paying attention. You're not learning your lesson. I'm about to ratchet things up. Here's what he says. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. So you start off with bloody water for a few days, and that's gross, and it's weird, but Pharaoh doesn't seem to be ultimately freaked out by it. But then you get the frogs, and the gnats and the flies, there's a, that's a real problem. But you can live with an excess of bugs and amphibians. It's terrible, but doable. But then dead livestock and the loss of your food supply and your crops and your economy, it's removing your ability to feed your family. Things are getting really bad, severe. This isn't just a disturbance to your life. This is like our lives are being destroyed. Then you have the plague of darkness. There's this, um, if you come out of, when I walk in through this side door here to come into work during the week, I'm usually the first person in the building and uh, none of the lights are turned on. And so as I come in that side door, I turn on those first lights in the hallway, but then I take a left to go to the bathroom and then I go to the fridge to get a diet Mountain Dew. You guys know how I do That hallway is pitch black. And sometimes I think, oh, I'm spatially oriented. I know this place. It'll be fine. You know, I'll just sort of feel my way along. I hit my face one out of every three times. I just, I think I know where the door is, but I don't. I mean, if you've never been, and it's hard because when you're out in nature, especially when there's no city light pollution, you have the light of the moon and the light of the stars to kind of illuminate your path. And when you're in the city, you have all kinds of, of lighting to help you understand. But if you've never truly been in the dark, you do not understand how disorienting, how crippling it can be. And so you have the severity of complete and utter dark. When when it is that dark, you cannot do anything. And then, of course, finally, you have the death of the firstborn sons of Israel. And we read in the text that a cry goes out in the land. And that, that cry, you, you can just om- almost imagine it, just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of families waking up to see a dead child in the land. And, and if you were in that home, you would say, I would take all the other plagues combined just to bring my child back. There's another kind of progression we see in this text. We see it in Pharaoh. We see it in Pharaoh. Pharaoh starts off, again, sort of nonplussed by the plagues. He thinks, yeah, you know, your magicians are good, but my magicians are better, and I'm Pharaoh, right? At the end of the day, I'm going to win. And then he starts to realize something significant is happening here, and so he starts pleading with Moses and Aaron, please go to Yahweh, relent. But even as he does that, he does so in a half-hearted kind of way, doesn't he? He says, okay, 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 uh, yeah, go to, go to Yahweh, ask him to, to stop this, and I will let the people go worship their sacrifices, but they can't leave the land of Egypt. They can't go into the wilderness. They have to do it here. Moses goes to God. God's like, no. Moses goes back to him, no. And Pharaoh's like, okay, 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 okay. You can go into the wilderness, but you can't go very far into the wilderness. I mean, I, c- I just can't have you going that far. I've got to keep my eyes on you. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's relenting, but he's only doing so in a stuttering fashion. He's, he's trying to maintain some semblance of control. Remember, Pharaoh thought he was God. you can't be God if you just let other people win the battle. So even if he lets them win a little, he feels like he has to maintain control. And then towards the very end of this drama... He says, okay, fine. Uh, go, but you know, like who do you want to take with you? Moses says, Well, we want to take everyone, you know. And Pharaoh's like, no, 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 you can't take everyone. Take all your men, go out into the wilderness, but that's it. You see what he's doing? In uh in 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief. And he says this. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sad that I got caught. Godly grief says, I'm sad that I sinned. Worldly sorrow says, I'm hurting over the consequences of my sin. Godly grief says, I can't believe I let sin win again. <laughs> I can't believe I gave in. Worldly sorrow says, I'm more upset about how my sin has affected me than how it has offended God. But godly grief says, I. I've offended my God, my maker, the savior of my soul. I I just cannot help but believe that, that Paul has this account in mind as he's writing about this because what we see in these actions of Pharaoh is over and over and over again an expression of worldly grief. But there is no true repentance. Pharaoh did everything and anything he could do to appear to be sorry without actually being sorry. And you can see how this applies to our lives, right? How often do we repent like Pharaoh? How often do we grieve like Pharaoh? One commentator says that Pharaoh is an expert at repenting under duress. Pharaoh only repents when he feels the pinch, when he really feels the consequences of his sin friends, that is no repentance at all. And not only is it not real repentance, but at the end of the day, it doesn't actually relieve us of all of the pain and suffering that that our sin brings about. Uh, Do you remember uh, as we were reading chapter 8, after the plague of the frogs, you know, frogs were swarming the land and (laughs) they were everywhere. They're going to be in your kilns, they're going to be in your ovens, they're going to be in your kneading bowls, like they're going to be everywhere. So Pharaoh's like, please, you know, have your God relent and then Yahweh relents and then we read this in chapter 8 verse 14. And they gathered them, that is all of the dead frogs, together in heaps and the land stunk. That's what sin does. Even if you can clean up a lot of the the consequences of your sin, you just can't, there's always going to be a, a stench that is left by rebellion and disobedience and a lack of faith, and it singes the nostrils, and it makes everything just unpleasant. Friends, you have to understand from this story that true repentance has almost nothing to do with tears. I say the word almost, because we all know, parents, talk to me, we all know what, it's lo- what it looks like for people to cry and to not, in fact, be sorry at all. I mean, I, I, I have met some truly incredible narcissists who have just really learned how to be, you know, they've learned how to act like human beings. You know, their sociopathic tendencies have trained them well. Oh, this is what, in this situation, a human would do in order to avoid the consequences of their bad actions, and so they can weep. Tears have almost nothing to do with true repentance. Having said that, true repentance should always bring about tears. Even if you're not a crier, you kind of get the idea. In Exodus chapter 9, the Lord puts it to Pharaoh like this. He says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Friends, that's what God wants from us when our sin comes before his face and he confronts us for it. When he disciplines us, he doesn't just want us to cry because he enjoys seeing tears run down our cheeks. He wants humble tears, tears that flow from a, a place of genuine contrition and brokenness because we realize before his face that we have not loved him as we should. So here's the main application point I want you to take from point number one Be humble before the Lord, or get humbled by the Lord. That's what happened to Pharaoh. We're going to get to that more next week, what it looked like for him to be truly humbled. But I want you to know that one of the ways that this applies to your life is that God may be doing something like what he did in these plagues in your life to humble you. He may be slowly turning up the heat I'm not saying he's going to send frogs into your house or that he's going to kill your garden, but he might. What I'm saying is that th- there may be things that he's just slowly, temporarily, gently doing in your life to just, you know, shake you, just to wake you up. Hey, hey you're going down the wrong path. I love you. I don't want that for you. And, and you might say, oh, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, you got a point there. You know, I shouldn't do that. But then you go back to it, and he comes along, and he's like, all right, well, I'll turn the heat up on you a little bit. I mean, you don't seem to be getting it. And he comes, and and it becomes more intense and more severe. and, 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 And then you might be inclined to play the victim. Why is God doing this to me? Why do all the bad things in life happen to me? No, you're not the victim, and God's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you, and he's turning up the heat, turning up the heat, so that hopefully you will humble yourself before him in repentance. When God disciplines his people, he usually starts with gentle, temporary measures, and then he ratchets up from there. You think about the way a, a, a loving and wise father would operate. Does a loving and wise father just pull out the belt first thing? Any kind of disrespect, any kind of sin in the home, does he just take off his belt and start swinging? Of course not. A loving father starts with gentle words of exhortation. Gentle words. And then he slowly ratchets up from there. Stern, maybe a bit of a finger point. Maybe a removal of privileges. Maybe a spanking. Maybe something more severe than spanking. But he he's he's gradually walking you through. And the father's desire is not to inflict pain on the child. The father says... I hope you understand, I don't want to be doing this. I want us to be hanging out watching, I don't know, Star Wars and eating ice cream or playing baseball. I don't want to have to be doing this. I don't want to see you hurt. That's the way the Lord operates with us in our sin. Now, the (laughs) the thing that's tough about that application point is that when the Lord ratchets up the plagues, he's not doing it to his people. He's actually doing it to Egypt. That doesn't mean I I don't think it applies to us. I think it does. But, But it also means that we can't move on from that point by considering those who may be here who do not know the Lord. If you're here and you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, if you are just trying to continue to do your own thing, maintain control of your own life, just move forward as if you are the God of your own universe, God may be doing the same thing to you. He may be coming along and inflicting you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he may be trying to upset your life. He may, in fact, damage your life. He may try to harm you in ways that you may not suspect, but in fact, he's using it to try to bring you to repentance. More on that towards the end of the sermon. Point number two, Yahweh versus the Pantheon. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, why the ten plagues? God didn't have to send ten plagues. He could have just snapped his fingers and accomplished all of his sovereign purposes. Well, in this morning's text, we arrive at more of an answer. Our first answer was because God is using the plagues to reveal himself. He's revealing his nature and character. But what we find in this morning's text is that God is not revealing his nature and character generally or vaguely, but explicitly and specifically. What we find in this morning's text is nothing less than the revelation, that is God revealing himself to us, That Yahweh is not only the one true God, but He is the one true God who stands in judgment over every other false god. That's what God wants you to know as He has this war in Egypt through the plagues. In chapter 8, verse 10, look there. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. You see this sentiment reiterated over and over again throughout these plagues. God is doing what he's doing so that you will know that he alone is God. God is not merely interested in revealing to you that he is But also, he wants you to know who he is. Something very interesting. In the book of Numbers, as Moses is writing and recounting the story of the Exodus, which includes the plagues, he describes what happened through the plagues in Egypt using these words. Listen carefully. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn. Whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods, the Egyptian gods, the Lord executed judgment. The ten plagues are a demonstration of God's power, of his glory, and of his judgment on idolatry. Now let's get more specific. These plagues are not random. It's not like God had a giant wheel in the sky, you know, that he spun and, you know, and then it landed on frogs one day and then it landed on flies the next day and then it landed on dead cattle, you know, the day after that. No, all of these plagues are very specific. They are all, all of them, each of them is meant to combat a particular Egyptian deity. The the world of Egypt was a polytheistic culture, and everyone worshipped more than one god. They all worshipped many gods, and each one of these plagues was meant to be a contest with an Egyptian deity. One commentator puts it like this. The plagues were designed to show the impotence, that is, the weakness, the lack of virility of the Egyptian gods. It was meant to show the supremacy of God's power over them and the futility of resisting his will. And then he goes on to walk through these. Just listen, the first plague, turning water into blood, it revealed the impotence of Num, the guardian of the river, and Hopi, the spirit of the Nile, and Osiris, whose blood was in the Nile. You're thinking, why did he turn the water into blood? That's kind of weird. Well, there was a reason why. They worshipped the god Osiris, who it was believed had blood in the Nile River. And God comes along and he goes, you want blood? This isn't metaphorical. I'm the real God. I can turn that water into blood. The second plague, the frogs, revealed the impotence of Hopi and Heket, who were symbolized by frogs and were related to Egyptian fertility rites. The third plague was lice. It revealed the impotence of Seb, the god of the earth. You remember what they had to do in that uh, in that plague? They took the dust of the earth and threw it in the air. The fourth plague, that of flies, revealed the impotence of a name I can't pronounce, the god of the flies. The fifth plague, the disease on cattle, revealed the impotence of uh, like six different gods, gods associated with livestock. The seventh plague, hail mixed with fire, revealed the impotence of nut, a kind of normal name there, the sky goddess, Isis and Seth, and all of the other Egyptian agricultural deities. They had a god for the atmosphere, a god for the weather, a god for the sky, the eighth plague, the swarm of locusts, revealed the impotence of Serapia, the deity who was supposed to protect Egypt from locusts. Can you imagine? You're in your house. You hear. You see a darkening of the sky. You hear. What do you do? You begin to, play, to pray. Serapia, please help us. It was, last year was not a great crop year. We can't handle it again this year. And then the locusts descend and utterly devastate every single crop in Egypt. The ninth plague, that of darkness, revealed the impotence of a bunch of different gods, all of whom were related to the gods of the sun. Finally, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, revealed the impotence of Pharaoh, who was supposed to be worshipped as a deity, and his godness was supposed to be transferred through the lineage of the firstborn son. Friends, God is not merely interested in revealing that he is. He is interested in revealing who he is. And one of the ways that he does this is through contrast. Remember what we always say, contrast creates clarity. Are you worshiping all these gods? Well, let me show you that I can do what they all do and I can do it all better and more powerfully. You see this pattern all throughout the Bible. Do you remember the book of Judges when we, we walked through that and we saw the story of Gideon? One of the famous stories from Gideon is that he had to go and tear down the altar of Baal, or Baal, as Russell would say. And the Lord commanded Gideon to tear down the altar of Baal using two bulls. That's an oddly specific instruction. Do you know why he used two bulls to tear down the altar of Baal? Because Baal was imaged in the ancient world by a bull. Then after that, the Lord says, well, I want you to build an altar to me in place of the bull on the altar of Baal to show my supremacy. Great, too easy, not a problem. But before you do that, I want you to offer a sacrifice unto me on this old altar. Can you guess the animal that he had to sacrifice? a bull, right? God is flexing big time. He's like, listen, use a bull to tear down the altar of the bull, and then I want you to kill a bull and to show this is what I do to these false gods, okay? I kill them, and I burn them up. Now, you know that an offering requires a fire, and a, refi- a fire requires fuel, wood, in order to be sacrificed, yeah, in order to be burnt, uh, This is where Gideon got his wood from. The Lord commanded him to cut down the Asherah pole. The Asherah pole was a figure that was intended to represent another deity in the ancient Near East, and this deity was responsible for fertility. Actually, Baal and Asherah were always together. They were kind of like the mom and the dad deities of that world, and you get together, and boom, fertility in the land, fertility in the household, so on and so forth. So Gideon cuts down this Asherah pole, takes the wood sets it on fire, and then offers the bull sacrifice on top of it. Do you see the way God likes to flex over these idols? He comes along and he's like, I'm going to use one dead idol to burn up another dead idol. This is the God that we serve. He uses frogs to show that happy, the God of fertility, is no God at all. He uses the waters of the Nile to show... Pharaoh, that Osiris is no god at all. He brings boils upon Egypt to show the Egyptians that Imhotep, the god of healing, is in fact no god at all. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's really cool, I guess, right? But like, what relevance does that have for my life today? I mean, I don't worship idols. And you, you know, you're probably thinking about your like, I've never seen an altar uh, I live in a pretty well-manicured subdivision, and I've never seen anyone have like, something set up in their front lawn where they go out and offer sacrifices. So uh, how does this apply to me? Well, let me, let me tell you three things. Let me show you three ways that this story of God flexing on idols actually applies to your life. The first thing you have to understand is that people do, in fact, still worship idols, Listen, you live downstream from Christianity in a highly industrialized Western country. You are the benefactors of the Enlightenment. I'm not guilting you for any of that. Yes and amen. Praise God. You won the historical lottery. Wow. But you should know that like billions of people still worship idols all over the world. Animistic religion, that is where you try to worship the deity through nature, is it is the most populous religion in the world today. And you're thinking, well, I thought it was like Christianity. Unfortunately, a lot of what is called Christianity is syncretized with animism. And a lot of these places are just Roman Catholic churches where they go and they they basically just take whatever the local religion is and they take Roman Catholicism and they combine them together. So it's still kind of the same thing. (coughs) I preached the gospel in a village in the jungles of Peru where an old man got up and told the villagers that he grew up worshiping the God of the river and the God of the boa constrictor. And this is not uncommon. You go many places in the world, people are still worshiping idols. So you may be thinking, oh, I don't know if this is relevant for me. There are, there are billions of people all over the world when they read this story, and if you were to tell them this is God showing his supremacy over idols, they would say, wow. My God is no God at all. Who is this God, Yahweh? If he can do this to the idols, then I want to worship him. The second way that this applies to your life is that you have to understand that uh, idols are not exactly false. They're not exactly false. Let me show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that an idol has no real existence. Pretty simple, right? You took this piece of wood from your wood pile and carved a face on it. Obviously, it has no real existence. Paul goes on to say, for there is no God but one. So we get it. When you worship an idol, you're worshiping something that you've created. It doesn't actually exist out there in the world. But later in 1 Corinthians, when talking about idol worship, Paul also says this. What pagans sacrificed to idols, they offered to demons and not to God. Here's what Paul is saying. When you're worshiping a God that doesn't exist, you're actually, whether you realize it or not, worshiping demonic forces. You're actually worshiping demons. Moses says the same thing in the book of Exodus. Russell showed me this this week. uh, Excuse me, in the book of Deuteronomy in reference to what was happening in the book of Exodus, it says this, Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. If you would have asked those people doing those sacrifices, are you offering sacrifices to demons? They would have said, no. No, I'm offering sacrifices to my gods. But Moses knew, he understood, God revealed to him Well, you think you're offering sacrifices to gods. The gods that you think exist, Imhotep, Osiris, Hopi, they don't exist. But there is something behind that, underneath that. There is some spiritual force, some reality at play, and the reality at play behind all of that is, in fact, demonic. Sometimes we think about the spiritual realm as if there are only two categories, God and nothing else. Oh, I mean... We're happy to admit that God exists, right? But it's the demonic stuff. That's the stuff that's hard for us to deal with. I, I once preached on a text about demons at a church, and I had a sister who was a member of that church come up to me after the service and say, you know, lean in close, but you don't actually believe in demons, right? Wrong. Wrong. I very much believe in demons. The Bible is very clear that there is a world that you can see with your eyes, and then behind that and underneath that, there is a world of spiritual forces. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, calls them the powers and the principalities, and they are pulling strings, they are at work, they are waging war against the sons and daughters of God. This is the worldview of the Bible. Now if I was a good like apologist right here what I would do is I would try to convince you of that fact if maybe you struggle with it and I'd try to persuade you and give you some and sociologists have this and they've done these studies and you know don't accept it or don't accept it. Believe it or don't believe it. But if you reject the the reality of the demonic then you reject the Bible because the Bible full-throatedly wholeheartedly says this is the reality of the world that we live in. Now These demonic influences that come through idol worship, they express themselves differently in different contexts. So in animistic cultures, you know, we're going to worship that mountain up there. In animistic cultures, it will express itself one way. But in cultures like our own, intellectual, industrialized cultures, well, these demonic forces may express themselves in other ways. Paul was writing to his beloved son, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and the world that they were in was the world of, of wisdom, Sophia, the Greeks, they loved ideas, they were conceptual. Yes, they still had some of that animistic stuff, but they were moving away from that, they thought. And so Paul says this, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Now that language, devoting themselves, that's the language of worship, Right? by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. When you see Joel Osteen on TV or on YouTube, he's not just teaching bad theology, he's teaching demonic theology. When you read Deepak Chopra books, or you tune tune into the newest life hack guru who's trying to get you to tap into spirituality without getting you to have anything to do with Jesus, you're not just getting some kind of vague, general, worldly wisdom. You're getting demonic teachings. And so often, people in the church who claim the name of Christ, they devote themselves to this stuff. You can't get them to read the Bible. You can't get them to show up consistently to church. You can't get them to be a part of the community or to pray or to serve the poor. But they will devote themselves to these things. In James chapter 3, verse 15, we see a, a, an iteration of the same things. James says, speaking of earthly wisdom that we too easily follow, this is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We may have replaced the shrine and the candles with a lectern and a whiteboard, but friends, you better believe that our idolatry is idolatry nonetheless, and it is demonic in nature. The third way in which you can apply this story to your life is by remembering that the human heart is an idol factory. A human heart can make an idol out of anything. Think about what happens when someone worships a false god, and it can be any false god. You can, you can take something from nature, like a river, or a frog, or a piece of stone, or a piece of wood, or you can have an idea or a relationship. Anything that is created by God that is not God, you can take that thing and begin to worship. And, and what does that look like? It's when you ascribe that thing power. When you think that that thing can serve you. When you think that that thing can save you. When you think that that thing can satisfy you. That is an idol. Romans chapter 1 verse 25 talks about this. It says, speaking of all sinners everywhere. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the heart of idolatry. You take anything that's created and you begin to think, oh, this thing can serve me. This thing can save me. This thing can satisfy me. An idol is anything that you put all of your hope and trust in. An idol is anything from which you derive your ultimate worth and value. An idol is anything that you place more confidence in than God. An idol is anything that when you lose it, you think, I've lost everything. An idol is anything that you look at and say, if I don't have this, then I cannot be happy. If I don't have this, then I cannot know peace. If I can't have this, then what am I even doing here? My life is meaningless. So it seems like the appropriate thing for us to do, brothers and sisters, would be to ask us corporately to ask ourselves, where are we hiding our idols? None of us are out here as self-identifying Christians, flaunting our idols. Many of us may not even be aware that we have them. We're hiding them from ourselves. And usually when we do that, we, we, we hide them in the places that no one would ever see These are the things that are so good in and of themselves, nobody would ever suspect that we have, in fact, begun to worship them. Children and family, career, health, religion. We can make an idol out of anything. Now, now let's, let's go back to this text this morning. Let's reconnect. The Lord God, Yahweh, has revealed himself in these plagues as the destroyer of gods. He has revealed himself as the crusher of idols. So here's what you have to understand. Your temptation to read this text is to read it like this. Yep, Yahweh sure did crush those idols in Egypt. And he's sure going to do it for all those pagans out there in the the world. Yeah, he's going to crush their idols. He's going to show himself to be supreme. But friends, God is the destroyer of idols wherever they may be including in us, including in our hearts. So one of the best things that you can do in light of this text is to search your heart, to search your life, and to ask yourself, what am I putting my trust in? What do I think can save me, can serve me, can satisfy me more than Jesus? And whatever that thing is, relentlessly put it to death by the power of God's word. It's interesting, at the end of his letter, 1 John, John is talking, how, how basically how can you know whether or not you actually belong to the Lord? And it's a, it's a combination of obedience and faith and love. They're all connected. If you have them, you probably belong to Jesus. If you don't, then you don't. But at the very end of the letter, he says this. It's the last line. It's the last thing he says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's something to think about. Point number three, a holy distinction. Here's what I want you to see as we wrap up our sermon. There is something about this revelation of God in the plagues that is intended to create a contrast in our hearts and minds. And here it is The Lord reveals himself in his wrath and in his grace simultaneously the Lord reveals himself in his wrath and in his grace simultaneously you heard Will say earlier as he was leading us into our first song together that the day of judgment for Egypt was in fact a great and terrible day judgment bad scary dark you don't want to be there you don't want to be caught up in that and yet for the people of Israel that very same day of judgment was a day of grace It was the day of mercy. One scholar, James Hamilton, he describes the whole story of the Bible like this. He says, God's glory in judgment or in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. The salvation can never be separated from the judgment. So in this morning's text, in chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord establishes a sanctuary for his people. He says, On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord God in your midst. And then in chapter 9, verse 4, he says this, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And then finally, in the Passover, you see another distinction. As the angel of the Lord comes and kills the firstborn of the land, everyone who has put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost is saved. The judgment, the wrath, and the grace and the mercy occur simultaneously, but as they do, they create a distinction between those who are holy and those who are not. Now, Paul picks this up in the book of Romans. Paul, in the book of Romans, he's dealing with the question of election and salvation. And he's he's saying, is it fair? That's the big thing. Is it fair, the way that God does this in Egypt, the way that God does this in the world at large. Is it fair that on the day of judgment, some perish and others live? And you might expect him to say, well, yeah, of course it's fair. Some people just chose him and other people decided not to choose him. That's not what he says. He says, actually, God chose to save some and not to save others. He chose to make that holy distinction. It had nothing to do with the people who received the grace and it had nothing to do with the people who hardened their hearts against the Lord. This is something that God planned before the beginning of the foundation of the world. And in order to show that, Paul walks through three examples. You can read it later in your, uh, later this afternoon if you'd like. He gives three examples. The first example is Sarah and Rebecca. The second example is Jacob and Esau, and that's where it ratchets up a little bit. He says, before either one of them were born and had done either good or bad, God chose one and did not choose the other. He loved one and he hated the other. But then finally, he gets to Moses and to Pharaoh. Here's what he says about Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I raised up Pharaoh. You tracking this argument? Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Anybody could have been in this position. Why did God raise up Pharaoh to this position of great power and prestige? He says, so that I might show my power in him. How is God going to show his power? He's going to show it in Pharaoh, namely through his destruction. Pharaoh begins at the beginning of these plagues. Ah, That's nothing, a little blood in the water. By the end, he's desperate, he's broken. He's saying, get out of my land. He's broken. The power of God has been exerted in him. And he says this, That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is saying that he raised up Pharaoh for the sole purpose of displaying his wrath in him. But then he goes on and he applies this this case study of Moses and Pharaoh. He applies it more broadly to salvation. This is what he says in Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, isn't that strange? Desiring to show his wrath, it's there. He could just say, it's there. Believe me, it's there. No, 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 no. It has to be displayed. And to make known his power, has endured with much patience. Much patience. I think about that when I think about the ten plagues, much patience, slowly turning the heat up, slowly preparing. He has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why would he do that? Why would he say, I'm going to prepare you for the sole purpose of destroying you so that my wrath and my power might be displayed. Well, he goes on and he explains. You're thinking, gosh, John, this is hot. this is a lot, man. This is hard. I didn't get taught this in Sunday school, and I don't know if my friend who's visiting today is going to come back. Good. Jesus said, "Count the cost. Know know who you're following before you follow him." This is the God of the Bible. This is why He does that, even though it's scary to us and it doesn't make sense to us. Verse 23. He did this in order to make known the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. There's so much. There's an abundance of his glory for the vessels of mercy. That's us. That's Israel. These are the saved ones. Which he prepared beforehand for that glory. What you have here is the picture of a potter who has this one lump of clay and he, he breaks up the clay and he says, this use of clay is going to be to display my wrath and, and this use of clay is going to be dis- used to display my, my grace, the glory of my grace. But the point is not just that there are these two separate categories, these two separate lumps of clay. This lump of clay that receives mercy and grace is supposed to look at the destruction of that lump of clay and be blown away. Be stunned, be floored, be humiliated. The only right response to this is to worship, It's to say, why God, why me? I could have been them. I could have been the vessel of wrath. You better believe, brothers and sisters, that if you don't feel that, you do not understand the gospel. You do not understand the gospel. If you think, oh, you know, I'm going to heaven because I, I, I mean, why wouldn't I go to heaven? I mean, did you see my church attendance? Did you, I mean, do you see the amount of money I give to the church? Do you know how much I serve the poor? Have you, my good works? Or you can play that I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, yeah, I mean, I probably don't deserve it that much, but I mean, I'm not out here raping and murdering people. God should probably let me in. No. <laughs> you deserve hell. We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. There is no difference between Moses and Pharaoh, between Israel and Egypt. We're going to see that next week. The plague is going to come The angel is going to kill the firstborn of every person in the land. The only thing that separates them is the blood of the lamb. Everybody deserves wrath. The only thing that can save us is the mercy and grace of God. And so that's my application for you, brothers and sisters. I hope you feel the weight of this holy distinction because the day of judgment has not yet fully passed. The day of judgment began to break in on us when Christ came to the earth. When he came in the likeness of sinful men but lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life. When he was hated, when he was killed, when he was hung on the cross, when he was struck down with the plague of God's wrath, though he in no way deserved it. And why did he do that? He did that so you might live. You might receive his mercy and grace. But that was just the beginning. That was the dawning of the day. But the fullness of the day is still yet to come. God is going to come back again to render a judgment. Where will you be on that day? The Lord has been working in your life to disrupt your life, to cause discomfort so you can see that all you need is found in Jesus. Every idol that you've built up and you're like, man, this is going to be the one that satisfies me. He comes along and goes, nope, destroyed. And you go, okay, that one didn't work. But this one is the one that's going to, nope, that one's not going to do it either. And he's crushing the idols and he's crushing the idols and it's hurting you and you're feeling the pinch in your life. And yet for some reason, you're still just hanging on to that. Why? Let it go. Turn to God and receive the free offer of grace that he has made you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what we need more than anything this morning is the ability to believe what we know to be true. So we pray that you will help us. Holy Spirit, awaken us. Move in us. Give us eyes of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.